Good morning. So you can ask most people about dying or heaven, and you get a variety of answers, especially from children. For instance, Alan, age seven, God doesn't tell you when you're going to die because he wants it to be a big surprise. (laughs) Or Aaron, age eight, the hospital is a place where people go on their way to heaven. And Raymond, age 10, a good doctor can help you so you won't die. A bad doctor sends you to heaven. Um, Stephanie, age nine, doctors help you so that you won't die till you pay all their bills. Marsha, age nine, when you die, you don't have to do your homework in heaven unless your teacher is there too. (laughs) And a very brave Kevin, age 10, I'm not afraid to die, I'm a boy scout. And uh, Ralph, age eight, when birds are ready to die, they just fly to heaven. So anyways, kids have... They're interesting perspectives. Now, I have a a comment that I don't expect to hear about anybody in this room. And the comment is, so what if I don't know what Armageddon means? At least it's not the end of the world. (laughs) I expect higher and better of you ladies (laughs) after studying Zechariah. (laughs) Oh, my word. Anyway, well, if you keep up with the news at all, there's rarely a day that goes by that Israel, Jerusalem's not in the news. As students of God's word, we have been given so many details of what the future of Israel will be like. There is an ever-increasing hostility towards Israel and the Jewish people as anti-Semitism is on the rise. It may not be politically correct to hate Jewish people, but nonetheless, there is a mindset amongst countless millions of people around the world that resent the Jewish people being in their homeland and have a great hostility that they frequently speak of and threaten, the people and the nation. So as we begin our study of chapters 12 through 14, we'll finish up next week, we'll see the final attack by all the nations of the world against Israel. The world will attempt to annihilate Israel, and it'll be a completely international group effort. In these closing chapters of this prophecy, we read of a series of events that culminate with Jesus' return Israel coming to repentance and the kingdom being established on earth. As verse 1 begins, the prophet describes the message he has been given here as the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. It speaks of something heavy, like a load to be lifted. This passage we are studying, indeed, it is really heavy. Uh, It's the Lord telling of a future siege that's going to transpire against Jerusalem and Israel but will eventually lead to the salvation of those who survive. God gave it to Zechariah, and therefore we have this privilege of knowing what's going to happen. Before getting into the prophecy of this chapter, Zechariah first reminds us that there is no force in the universe that will be able to stop God's plans and purposes for Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. He is the one in charge. God's omniscience, God's omnipotence maintains everything happening in the universe, and he is actively involved in bringing the consummation of the destiny that he has for Jerusalem and the Jewish people. There will be the Antichrist, there will be Satan demonically inspiring rulers and countries and all kinds of things going on, but in reality, it is God orchestrating these events. Human history is in the control of a sovereign God, and he will bring it to his conclusion. 
So all these chapter, all these events are going to happen as we see in that day. The phrase is used 16 times in these last three chapters. And speaking of that time when God is dealing directly on this planet with his wrath being poured out in the seven-year tribulation, ending with the Battle of Armageddon. So I'm grateful for the different theologians and men I've been able to study and read, like John MacArthur, David Levy, and it is from them that I share truth <laughs> in our study today. So we begin with the deliverance of Israel, the future siege of Jerusalem by the nations. We just read that God is the creator of all and has all the future under his control in verse 1. Verse 2 says, Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. So God is telling Zechariah and all of us about the final battle of the ages spoken about in the book of Revelation as the battle of Armageddon. We read in Revelation 17:6 that the evil world system at that time uh, will be drunk with the blood of martyrs. In a similar sense, the nations will be drunk with their confidence and their desire to conquer Israel. And so they will drink deep of war and they will end up stumbling and reeling from it. God is going to make a cup. And the word used here for cup is not like what you think of a little coffee or water cup. It's a wide basin, which all the nations of the world are going to come and drink from. It will cause them to stagger like a drunk person and be unable to defend themselves. They will come to destroy Israel, but they will become confused and stagger about. Verse 3 says, It shall come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. All the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. <clears throat> so every nation on earth will be gathered against Jerusalem and all the nation of Israel. And imagine all the armies of the earth united uh, together in this common cause to destroy this tiny piece of land and this tiny nation. The arrogant, boastful nations of the world will think they can take on and destroy God's people. And therefore, they would remove any possibility of the Messiah coming back to set up his kingdom for his people. That's really from Satan's perspective what this is all about. Jerusalem is said to be a heavy stone. It will injure all who try to lift it. Like guys in a weightlifting competition, there will be those who try to lift this stone, but they will be injured. The injury has the thought of dislocating or rupturing or tearing the body that attempts to lift this stone. The picture from these two verses is that all the nations of the earth come against Jerusalem and Judah, her outlying areas, and they think it'll be an easy win, but they are the ones who will be destroyed. Verse 4, in that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. <clears throat> but I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. So there's going to obviously be incredible divine intervention as every horse and every rider panics or goes mad. <clears throat> Excuse me, the prophet Joel describes this event in his uh, prophecy in chapter 3 where he says, proclaim this among the nations, prepare a war, rouse the mighty men, let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up, let the nations be aroused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, the harvest is ripe, come, tread the winepress is full, the vats overflow, <clears throat> for their wickedness is great. 
multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. <clears throat> the sun and the moon grows dark, the stars lose their brightness, the Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel 7, as well as Revelation 17, talk about all these different nations coming to attack Israel. The one from the west will be the revived Roman Empire, a ten-nation confederacy from Europe led by the Antichrist. <clears throat> and then there will be the army that comes from the north, spoken of in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which will be Russia and all of her allies, probably like Iran. <clears throat> and then we have from Daniel 11, the south, people coming up from Egypt and other Arab nations that will be in an alliance with them. And then Revelation 9 speaks of a great army of the east with 200 million soldiers marching on the dried Euphrates River, which obviously is China who already has an army that size. <clears throat> so the entire globe will come in a rage to Israel, starting from Galilee and moving to the plain of Megiddo. And if you've ever been to Israel and you stand up at Solomon's, uh, where he kept horses, and you look out over this vast <laughs> stretch of flat land, it, it is stunning. It is a perfect battlefield. And the God of this world will entice all the nations to join together. Regardless of their differences, what they have in common is a hatred that craves bringing destruction to Israel. We read in Revelation 14 that the bloodshed will be 200 miles long. The entire length uh, is going to be drowning in a bloodbath as the war of the worlds takes place. And we, we read about the blood up to the bridle of the horse as well. Satan and his demons will be inspiring this gathering, this war. And as I reminded you last week, this is a war that really began with Satan way back when he rebelled against God and said, I will be like God. And I'm going to try to disprove everything he's going to do. I'm going to try to stop it. And that's what he has done throughout human history. It may seem like the devil has the upper hand, but the gathering of the nations against Israel, inspired by Satan, who's using Antichrist as man, in reality is God gathering the nations for their destruction. Satan's armies will have a measure of success, as we will see in chapter 14, and, uh, but when two-thirds of the Jewish people are killed. But a third will be protected as the Lord goes out to fight those nations on their behalf. So we are looking at the future culmination of human history as God directs these events by his sovereign power. I remind you that God is just as sovereign today, and he is the one directing all the events going on in our present crazy world. And all the events in your life and mine as well, he is sovereign over and has a purpose in. When God says events will happen, <clears throat> we know they will happen because he has the power and the plan to make them happen, as he says. So we read about horses being struck with bewilderment or madness. Horses speak of power and force. They obviously were the weapon of choice, you know, in, pre in wars before modern machinery. Whatever the weapon of war in use at this time, the Lord will strike it down. Both soldier and their weapon, whether it's a literal horse or tanks, will be struck down with madness. There will be complete chaos on the battlefield. Weapons will not function. Those leading the armies will panic. 
and some will be struck with blindness. There will be terror and confusion in this army, but God will watch over the house of Judah. Whatever weapons and vehicles and peoples on the attack and leading the charge, there will be confusion, there will be absolute chaos and panic. You know, you think about Israel's history. God did this numerous times. You know, when you read through the Old Testament on a smaller scale where nations had gathered to destroy Israel and, and they all, you know, got confused and killed each other. So this isn't a new thing, but it will be in such a grand scale. Verse 5, Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. They will realize Jerusalem is being divinely protected, and they will have hope. In the midst of the horrors and the death of this attack, some will look to the word of God and his promises, and they will return to the Lord. They will realize they have no one on this planet but God. As the Lord opens their hearts to realize God has fulfilled his promises. <clears throat> Victory is not happening because they are so superior in their military skills but only because the Lord of hosts is at work on their behalf. And in that day, verse 6 says, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. So <clears throat> the invading armies of the world will go through all of Israel and Judah on their way to Jerusalem. But the clans of Judah will be like coals of fire to torch and burn the invaders. So this will be miraculous as smaller villages and towns in Israel will be empowered by God to destroy invading armies. It will be a horrific bloodbath, as we know so many Jewish people will die, but far more destructive for those invading them. Like a fire pot full of hot coals, Jerusalem's attackers will be incinerated by a fiery torch, and those in Jerusalem shall again dwell in their own sites in Jerusalem. They will not be overrun. They will survive. Amazingly, God will preserve Jerusalem just like he always has. I mean, think of it. This is a city that has never moved through thousands and thousands of years since David conquered the Jebusites and made it his capital. <clears throat> the city of David, the city of Zion, you can go there today. You can go to Mount Moriah today. You can touch it. You can go to the Mount of Olives today and walk on it. It's still there. God will protect Jerusalem, and he will be a shield to her. And it will become, it will, uh, become a time of their, Israel's greatest repentance as finally all glory due to God will finally be given to him from his people. Verse 7 says, The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. There's not going to be any place for pride in the victories that happen here from a human perspective. From the small villages up to Jerusalem, all will know it is the Lord making this victory happen. And in that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God and the, like the angel of the Lord before them. You know the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate appearances of Christ who used his great power throughout Israel's history to strengthen them and give them victory. What an amazing scene. Hand-to-hand -hand combat is taking place. <clears throat> and the Lord is going to strengthen the Jewish people so that even the most feeble, whether they're elderly, I don't know, they have disabilities, they're going to be warriors like David, Israel's greatest warrior. 
God will enable his people to defend themselves in the country and in the city of Jerusalem, and then Messiah himself, the angel of the Lord, will come and appear. We read in chapter 14, which we'll see next week, verse 4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a large valley, so the half of the mountains will move to the north and the other half south, a massive valley sweeping, sweeping to the east, and you'll flee by the valley of my mountains. <clears throat> this is how the remnant will escape and be protected by their Messiah. Both Joel and Revelation state that the heavenly bodies fa uh, fall, so there will not be light, but the sign of the Son of Man will be when he comes in a Shekinah glory to conquer. Revelation 19 says that he comes out of heaven riding in a white horse with his heavenly armies riding behind him, and he is king of kings and lord of lords. And in that day, verse 9, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. This is the future culmination of our world. So it will be the great deliverance for Israel as God destroys the armies of the entire world who have come to gather against her as the Messiah himself arrives. Ladies, this is the second coming of Christ. This is what we pray for. This is what we sing about when he comes again. This is it. He will defeat Israel's enemies. He will conquer the hearts of his people still alive at his return. So we don't have to wonder where in the world is this world headed? This is where it's headed. <clears throat> we clearly read about the future here in the book of Zechariah. The question really is, where will you be in this moment? Because this moment is going to happen. Will you be part of his army following Christ from heaven as he returns? That's only possible if you are in a relationship with him and know your sins are forgiven. Or will you be separated from him because of your sin? The salvation of Jerusalem is the last couple verses as Messiah returns. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of losing a firstborn. This event is also prophesied in Joel. And this is a familiar prophecy, but really the fulfillment of this prophecy is right here at this moment. It shall come to pass afterward, Joel says, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, they will prophesy. And your old men dream dreams and your young men see visions. And also on the servants and on the handmaids in those days, I will pour out my spirit. This is fulfilled at this moment. In the midst of all the horrific events going on, the Jewish people will go back to the God of the Old Testament, to his promises, and they will know it is he who's defending them. There can be no other explanation for their victories as he destroys their enemies. There is not going to be any celebration going on, though. Not at all. Rather, this is a time of incredibly horrific sorrow. God will pour out his spirit of grace and supplication. That is the work of salvation that he will do when he takes hearts of stone and makes them hearts of flesh. And they look on me, whom they pierced, and they grasp that God was crucified, that Jesus and God are the triune Godhead. We see evidence of the Trinity here as the spirit of God opens their eyes and brings conviction of sin, and, and God the Father and God the Son, whom they pierced, they are equal God. And the people will weep and mourn 
just like those who have gone through the agony of losing a son or a child. They will mourn like the Israelites mourned at the godly death of King Josiah and Second Chronicles. Verse 12 says, the land will mourn, every, by, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives, Nathan, his wives, Levi, his wives, Shimeites, their wives, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. So these verses make it clear that this will not be some national day where we all as a nation repent. Uh, no, this is very specific. Every family, every individual in every family will mourn and repent. They will all see their sin. It's not just a wife following her husband's example. She will repent for her own sins. They will finally grasp Isaiah 53. He was wounded. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Salvation has always come to individuals. And at this time, every surviving individual in the nation of Israel will repent and be saved. Thus will be fulfilled what Paul said in Romans eleven twenty six, And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will, deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And this is the fulfillment. One day, starting with the royal family of the descendants of David, right on down to, through the priests and every individual, they will come personally to see the message of the cross and realize they pierced their own God, their Messiah, and there will be repentance for sin. The nation will finally look at the word of God and believe its promises are true and not make any more excuses and not twist scripture that it doesn't mean what it says. It will take the most horrific crisis in all the world that's, that's never even come close to happening yet to finally bring this truth home to their hearts. The mourning they experience will not just be for their own personal sin. It will include the reality that for thousands of years, generation after generation of their own people have rejected their Messiah and have been lost forever. The comforting truth here is that God forgives them. He forgives them for denying him. He forgives them for murdering him. He forgives them for their rebellion and their sinful pride. This is the same God who offers forgiveness to you and to me for our wretched sinfulness. God the creator became a man in order to die in the place of sinners. My heart's prayer is that each of you has come to that place where your confidence and hope is in Jesus and that his death on the cross was for your sins individually, not because you were in a family that believed this. This is not just about knowing. This is about trusting and confidence in Jesus as your own personal sin bearer. We don't have to live in fear of the future, ladies, nor do we have to wonder where this world is going to end up. Being students of God's word, and I commend you for being here and being students of Zechariah, we have been given a glimpse of the future. I mean, look how many people pay people to read tarot cards or, you know, look into my future, and that's demonically inspired. We have absolute truth. We know the future, what's going to happen. And the best news is that, you know what? Jesus wins. That's how this ends up. <laughs> yes, Satan is at work trying to destroy everything and everyone that God loves. But we read in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
That's what it is right now. But one day, this evil one, after he unites this world in his final attempt to defy the true God, he will lose and he will be cast away. Ephesians 6 reminds us that as believers, we need to be dressed in spiritual armor because we are in a battle with this evil demonic forces every day. The enemy of Israel, you know what? He's your enemy as well, if you know Jesus. And he wants you to live a life characterized by defeat and despair and sadness so that you're ineffective in having any service for the Lord. That's his goal for you. Let me take out your family. Let me take you out so you're useless. Consumed with yourself, consumed with self-pity, consumed with your own fears, your own anxieties. We have to guard our minds from camping on the evil thoughts that he tempts us with. Jesus wins at the end, and as his children, we can win today in our battle and our fight against sin in our own personal lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you gave us the privilege to be studying a book like this that you actually reveal what's coming. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to be confused why things are so vile in our world and why there's so much uh, hatred and and evil when we know the demonic forces that are going to orchestrate these events that are coming. Lord, we thank you for truth. I pray that we would live today in light of the fact that you are victorious, you are going to carry out your word, and you have given us the same spirit you're going to pour out on your people at this last scene in human history, you have given us the spirit so that we might walk today in repentance over our sin and walking in fellowship and keeping short accounts with you. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that we would be obedient to what we know. We thank you that you win and we have confidence of an amazing future. In Jesus' name, amen.